Part nine of The Highwayman by H. C. Bailey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fie, what a heat, says McBean placidly. They were now come to Colonel Boyce's lodging, and he bade the bearers take Harry up to his own room. I sent a brisk lad for Rolf, says McBean. I could but stop the blood. He'll be here soon enough. It's but a step to Chancery Lane. He knows more of wounds than any man in the town. Colonel Boyce was for a moment speechless. I shall send for Dr. Radcliffe and Sir Samuel Garth, says he majestically. I wish you good night, sir. I believe they have sense enough to do no harm, said McBean. And now, Boyce, a word with you. Not in the street. I don't desire it, sir, which McBean answered by passing in front of him into the house. Colonel Boyce came after, fuming. Egad, sir, you presume upon my wound, he cried. You, not I, patch yourself up, and I'll meet you at your convenience. There's more urgent matter. When the boy comes to himself, if ever he comes to himself, I must have speech of him. Colonel Boyce, who now completely commanded himself, had grown very pale. You have gone too far, Captain McBean. I desired to forget that I have you in my power. You force me to use it. If you thrust yourself upon me, I shall have you arrested as a traitor. McBean flushed. Odzo, then there is some villainy of yours in the affair. Devil take you. I have a mind to finish you now, a wounded man as you are. He had his hand on his sword. Will you go, sir? Not I. If you have murdered him, you. He slapped his sword home again. No, mordieu, I can't touch you so. And you may meddle with me if you dare. Oh, you have a great devotion to the boy, Captain Boyce sneered with pallid lips. You would have him deeper dipped in your mad treasons? I think you have done him harm enough. He struck his bell. Harm? McBean cried. Is it harm? You that begat him for the heir to your damned infamy? You have soured him with your husk of a soul and your cold cunning. You that made a dirt heap of his life to suit your muddling need. You... But Colonel Boyce swayed in his seat and fell sideways, fainting. A moment McBean surveyed him as if he thought this too a trick. Then, Ventrebleu, says he, his providence takes a hand, and he whistled, and it is not to be denied that he looked covetously at the cabinet which held Colonel Boyce's papers. The poor old devil, he said with a shrug, he grows old, in fact. I suppose there's more blood in his shirt now than his damned body. And he knelt down and began to feel about the wound. He was at that when a woman announced the surgeon. Mr. Rolfe? Never more welcome. Here's old Colonel Boyce with a hole in his shoulder and young Mr. Boyce with two holes through and through. A street brawl. Pray go up, sir. The lad's in bad case. Faith, it's Captain McBean, says Rolfe, a brisk big man, as they shook hands. What have you to do with Noel Boyce? 
a friend of the family says mcbean away with you to the lad and he knelt again and ministered to the unconscious colonel a friend of the family old gentleman says he with a grin chapter twenty nine alison kneels so all this while alison lacked an answer to her letter she fretted at the delay she grew angry soon but it does not appear that she allowed herself any new pique against harry she was angry with circumstance with herself and something much more than angry with mr waverton it was detestable of geoffrey to dare spy and plot against harry intolerable in him to suppose that she would favour the villainy but she had been a fool and worse to give him any chance of insulting her so and yet she might have hoped that her letter sure she had been humble enough in it that her letter would bring harry back in a hurry it was maddening that some trick of circumstance should have kept it from him or him from her for she had no notion that he would read the letter and toss it aside or delay to come there was nothing petty about mr harry no spite nothing of the woman in him thank god what had happened that he gave her no answer for certain the letter had gone safely to the tavern she could be sure of her servant harry was living at the tavern the people there gave assurance of that it was strange that he made no sign the servant indeed had waited for an answer late into the night and seen nothing of him perhaps he had discovered geoffrey's spies and gone into hiding it would be like geoffrey to devise some mighty cunning villainy and so manage it that it was futile perhaps harry really was at some secret politics captured again by his father and sent off to france or too deep in some matter of danger to show himself perhaps perhaps a thousand things so that she made no doubt of harry he would not deny her when she came seeking him she had no fear either her nature could not imagine perils or disasters there was too proud a force in her life for her to admit a dread of being defeated her man must live and be safe because she needed him harry could not fail her but she was desperately impatient she wanted him every instant and even more she wanted to stand before him and accuse herself confess herself for the truth is that geoffrey waverton had profoundly affected her when she found Geoffrey daubing her with patronizing congratulations, when he dared to claim her as ally in mean tricks against her husband, she discovered that she must be miserably in the wrong. Approved by Geoffrey, annexed, used by Geoffrey, faith, she must have sunk very low before he could dare venture so with her. She received illumination. She saw herself in the wrong first and last, the sole sufficient cause of their catastrophe. A petty, mean creature, snarling and spiteful and passionate for trivialities, 
just like geoffrey just such a creature as she hated most pride and honour instantly demanded that she must seek harry indict herself and read her recantation she needed that longed for it and to satisfy herself not him it is possible she then began to love so monsieur must be found instantly instantly when she thought of all her tale of sins she must needs think also of mrs weston poor weston had enough against her too weston his mother it still seemed almost incredible that poor grey puritan weston should be mother to harry but if she was indeed she might know something of him at least it would be good to make peace with her again it was necessary and so on the day that harry fell mrs alison marched off to the little cottage behind the high street it was a room that opened straight from the path and it seemed very full susan was sitting there who was now susan hadley her fair placidity admitted no surprise she smiled and said alison mrs weston stood up in a queer frozen fluster what do you need ma'am says she oh weston dear don't take me so alison cried and she edged her way between the little table and the stiff chairs holding out her hands mrs weston flushed your servant ma'am says she with a curtsy but she ignored the hands then susan stood up i must go i believe she smiled and bent to offer one fair cheek to mrs weston the other was then given to alison she smiled upon them both benignly and made for the door susan you'll dine with me to-morrow alison put in oh mr hadley will be at home but of course you bring him thank you then the door shut behind her and the room was larger i can't tell why you have come says mrs weston tremulously to say i was wrong and i'm sorry oh weston dear to say i have been a peevish wicked fool mrs weston sat down again where is harry she said i have writ to him to beg him come back to me i'm asking you to come back to us you where is he ah you don't know then i have not seen him since he left your house he has been living in a tavern in the long acre i have made sure of that and i wrote to him there but he has not answered me he does not answer me i can't tell if he has gone away where is his father mrs weston asked quickly his father colonel boyce oh weston colonel boyce is his father then did you come to pry mrs weston flushed i do not deserve that alison said and then very gently oh my dear but i have been cruel enough to you it's very well mrs weston said faintly where is colonel boyce i know nothing does it matter weston dear he cannot help us to harry i am afraid of him oh it's all wrong maybe i am so weak and stupid but i'm afraid what he may do with harry indeed i think mr harry can keep his head even against colonel boyce alison smiled his head 
Mrs. Weston looked puzzled. I don't mean that, I believe. I am afraid he may win Harry to be like himself. He is so clever and dazzling, and he is full of wickedness. He cares for nothing but his own will and to have power. When I saw him so friendly with Harry, I thought I should have died. My poor Weston, Alison said gently, but I am not afraid of that. Mr. Harry won't be dazzled. You dazzled him. Oh, and I am full of wickedness, too, Alison laughed. Dear, forgive me. No, but you are strong and hard, as his father was. Alison drew in her breath. I shall teach you not to call me that, Weston, she said, and Harry, well, Harry shall find me for him. There was silence for a while, and Alison watched with new emotions the tired, wistful face. Weston, dear, I want you to come back to me. I want Mr. Harry to find you with me when he comes home. Mrs. Weston cried out. He does not know who I am, in anxious fear, and clutched at Alison's hand. No, indeed, but he loves you already, I think. But I do not want him to know, Mrs. Weston cried. I, I was not married to Colonel Boyce. Weston, dear, Alison pressed the hand. I lived at Kingston. My father reared us strictly. He was harsh. I think that was because my mother died so young. Mr. Boyce, he was a gentleman in the blues then, and very fine, much gayer than Harry, and more handsome. He used to ride out to Hampton Court to an old cousin of his, who had a charge at the palace. He met me one day by the river. I don't know why he set himself upon me. I was never much to his taste, I think, but I thought him the most wonderful man in the world. I let him do what he would with me. I don't blame him for that. He never promised me anything. In a while he grew tired. Then Harry came. My father could not forgive me. Afterwards they said that I had killed him. Harry was born. I lay very still, and they believed that I should die. I never knew whether it was my father or my brother sent for Mr. Boyce. My brother boasted afterwards that it was he made him relieve them of the baby. And I, I did not die, you know. When I began to be well again, my baby was gone. My father lay dying then. He would not see me. My brother was the head of the family, and he, I could not stay there. I tried to find Mr. Boyce, but he had left the regiment. He had gone to Holland, they said, after the Duke of Monmouth. I could do nothing, and my brother had told me that Mr. Boyce would soon find a way to be rid of my baby. I, I believed that he had. I never saw Harry again till, you know, I never saw his father till that day at Lady Waverton's. He told me afterwards that he had said to him I was dying and he supposed me dead. I believe that is true. He would not have troubled himself with the child else. Oh, Weston, dear, Alison murmured, and caressed her. Mrs. Weston pushed back the hair from her wrinkled brow. 
Mr. Boyce promised me that Harry need know nothing of me now. I do not know if he has kept his word about that. There's nothing about Harry that is not safe with me, Alison said. Oh, my dear, now I know where Harry has his strength from and his gentleness. Mrs. Weston looked at her in a puzzled fashion. I wonder what he is doing now, she said wearily. I think I have told you everything, Alison. Oh, your father. Your father was very kind to me. When I did not know what to do, I had no money left. They gave me five pounds. I went to him. He used to come to my father's house, you know, when he had business in Kingston. He used to go all over the country about his trading. My father said he was a godless man, but he was always kind to me. I told him everything. He took me into his house, and indeed I did not know where to go for food. I was your mother's servant while she lived, but I think she doubted me. Your father never told her anything, and she... But she let me be. Oh, Weston, Weston, Alison said, and you have spent all your life caring for me. There was nothing else to do, but I was glad to do that. She looked at the girl with strange, puzzled, wistful eyes, and saw Alison's eyes full of tears. She put out her hand shyly, awkwardly, and touched Alison's cheek. Alison smiled, laughed with a sob in her voice. "'It is a long while since I cried,' she said, and put her arms round Mrs. Weston, and laid her head on Mrs. Weston's bosom, and cried indeed. Mrs. Weston held her close, Alison, but this isn't like you. Indeed it is, Alison sobbed. Chapter 30 Emotions by Mr. Waverton You behold Mr. Waverton exhibiting a high impatience. He was alone in the best room of the Peacock at Islington, a well-looking place after its severe old oak fashion. Disordered food upon the table showed that Mr. Waverton had been trying to eat with little success. Mr. Waverton's hat upon one chair, his whip upon another, and his cloak tumbled inelegantly over a third proved that he was not himself. Mr. Weston had, for he was born to treat his clothes with respect. Mr. Waverton would be jumping up to look out of the window flounced down again in his chair to drink wine and stare with profound meaning at the table start up and stride to the hearth and glower down at its emptiness and repeat the motions in a different order he must be theatrical even without an audience but he had some excuse for his uneasiness it was the evening of his conversation with my lord sunderland and that fiasco had stimulated him, you know, to a grand exploit. He was waiting for news of it. The twilight darkened early. Mr. Waverton pushed the window open wider, and leaned out only to come in again in a hurry, as if he were afraid of being seen. The room was close, and he wiped his large brow, and flung himself down, and drank. There was a dull sound of thunder, rolling far away. In a little while came the beat of rain, slow, big drops. 
that was soon over then lightning stabbed into the room and the storm broke candles were brought to mr waverton's petulant appeal and an excited maid-servant bustled and blundered over clearing his table with pious invocations at each thunderclap she fretted mr waverton who admonished her and made her worse upon him and her there came a man cloaked from heel to eye streaming rain from every angle he shook a shower from his hat hell what a night says he breathless save you squire begone girl begone i say odds life leave us do you hear says mr waverton in much agitation bring us a noggin of rum sucky darling says the wet gentleman dragging himself out of his sodden cloak he flung it upon mr waverton's run girl says mr waverton in a terrible voice go you fool he advanced upon her and she stopped gaping and got herself out with a great clatter of crockery odd burn and blast it i want it says the wet gentleman and collapsed into a chair i believe you squire i want it what is the news with you mr waverton said odds bones how you got the megs the megs i say oh rot you the ready the hundred guineas is it done then mr waverton's voice dropped out with the coal burn you mr waverton put a bag of money down on the table the man snatched at it tore it open and began to count is it done ned i say mr waverton cried ned showed some broken teeth i believe you by god he has it he's dead meat two irons through and through his guts mr waverton flung back in his chair how then he said in a low voice ned was it in a fight you brought him into a fight ned went on counting the guineas and sometimes tried one in his yellow teeth oh have done with that mr waverton cried they came straight from my goldsmith man tell me you said you would force a fight on him did he lay your life ned grinned there was a fight sure old ben knows that by god ay ay you're fond of fighting ain't you squire i fight with gentlemen sirrah says mr waverton for such base rogues as this fellow i must provide otherwise provide my breeches says ned coarsely and swept up his money where's that damned rum you may take it in the tap mr waverton rose nay nay she'll bring it nay but ned how did he take it rot you how would you take an iron in your gizzard he said nothing now stap me do you think we waited for him to say his prayers prayers says mr waverton grandly they would little avail him well now burn me you're a saint yourself ain't you the rum arrived and the servant with frightened eyes upon the bedraggled ned went stumbling out of the room again you are impertinent sirrah says mr waverton the fellow well deserved his end i may tell you that i was advised to deal with him thus privately by a noble lord in high place then it's worth more than a hundred megs you have your pay i believe i am satisfied with you damn your airs says ned but something awed by this parade well i must quit it is better mr waverton agreed oh there was a letter for my gentleman at his tavern we pouched that 
while we were waiting for him. Do you care for it? It's a pretty tender thing. I reckon it's cheap for another five pieces. You are a scoundrel, said Mr. Waverton, and tossed another guinea on the table. Pot to you, says Ned, but slapped down the letter. Well, I'll march. Maybe you'll have some more in my way. I won't forget you, squire. And out he went. Mr. Waverton, left alone, fingered the letter contemptuously. His great mind was indeed possessed by thoughts of victory. He had hated Harry, rarely, with the chief count in his enmity, that Harry was a low fellow, hireling, menial. He could have borne defeat with some grace. He might even have sought no revenge for being made ridiculous, if the offender had been of a higher station than his own. But such insolence from a pauper! The fellow must needs be crushed like an insect. Only such ignominious extinction could satisfy Mr. Waverton's dignity. He inclined to despise himself for a shadow of human concern about the manner of Harry's death. Faith, it was an extravagance of chivalry to desire that the rogue should have had a chance to fight, that generous chivalry which had ever been his bane. He felt nothing but exultation at the issue. The wretched creature had been properly punished, stamped out by knaves of his own class in a vulgar street brawl, a dirty hole and a corner end. Egad, my lord, was very right. These petty, shabby knaves should be dealt with privately. Mr. Waverton found a revenge very sweet. So Mr. Harry Boyce had gone to his account, and Alison was happily delivered. Dear child, Mr. Waverton felt a pleasant warmth of heroism steal over him, felt himself a knight-errant, rescuing his lady from the powers of darkness. Dear Alison, she was free now, to be sure, she need not be told the manner of the deliverance. That would be an outrage on her delicacy. Enough for her that the cunning wretch who had cozened her was dead, and she a happy widow. She had but to show her pretty penitence, and Mr. Waverton proposed to be magnanimous. The prospect much pleased him. He saw himself grandly accepting her, permitting her to be very tender, wittily but with a touch of magnificence restraining her from too much humility he came out of his golden dream in the end and was conscious again of the letter and sneered at it a nasty infected thing to be sure damp and filthy from ned's handling what was it the fellow said a tender composition bah some blousy paramour of the knave voice but Perhaps it would be well that Alison should know that the fellow had paramours in his own class. She ought to be made to feel how low she had sunk by yielding to him. Mr. Waverton opened the letter and saw Alison's writing. Mr. Boyce, I desire that you would come to me at Highgate. I have to-day heard from Geoffrey Waverton what you must instantly know and the truth is i cannot be content till i speak with you but i would not have you come for this my asking pray believe it is urgent for us both that we meet and i do require it of you not desiring of you what you may have no mind to but 
to be honest with you and lest that should befall which i hope you would not have me bear signed a mr waverton read with swelling eyes it was a little while before the meaning came home to him he was never quick then a sin to which he was not prone he used oaths the treacherous besotted woman she was still craving for her shabby lover then she offered a fair face to her too generous too faithful mr waverton only to obtain his confidence and betray him again egad she was too base rotten at the very heart of her why some women must lust after a low common fellow as dogs after dirt so she would have saved her voice from his master's punishment mr waverton laughed she would have had him back in her arms again mr waverton continued to laugh but faith she went too far when she tried to trick mr waverton a second time much she had gained by her treachery her fine husband was out of reach now it would be a pleasure to advise her of his death nay faith a duty the miserable creature had been saved from herself she must be shown that oh delicately with something of a cold grandeur a touch of irony maybe but always in a lofty manner as became one who moved upon heights far above her grovelling soul mr waverton for all his high irony rode back home through the dregs of the storm very furiously chapter thirty one captain mcbean takes horse captain mcbean healthily red and brown showed no sign of having been out of bed all night from cold water and a razor in his own lodgings he came back at a round pace to st martin's lane he found his aide mr mackenzie taking the air on the doorstep of the blue house and rebuked him i bade ye bide with the lad donald the surgeon has him in hand sir tiens he's a brisk fellow that rolf i'm thinking mr boyce will need him eh is there anything new i would not say so but he's sore hurt and i'm thinking he takes it hard ay you're the devil of a thinker donald captain mcbean grinned and the colonel has he made a noise he's in the way of calling for liquors but he's peaceable the women say you'll go get your breakfast and be back again and bring o'connor with you i'll hope to need the two of you captain mcbean relieved guard on the doorstep till the surgeon came down i'm obliged to you mr rolfe what do you make of him egad captain you're devoted why the old gentleman has put in for some fever but but i doubt he will do well enough be sure of it what of the young one mr rolfe pursed his lip faith there's no more amiss but but why he was hard hit i grant you but you might take the young one for the old one do you follow me the lad hath no vigour in him mcbean nodded i'll be talking to him by your leave odd's life i would not talk long i don't like it captain and there's the truth go easy with him i will be here again to-day 
Captain McBean went up to the room where Harry lay as white as his pillows. A woman was feeding him out of a cup. "'You made it damn salt, your broth,' says Harry, in a feeble disgust. "'Tis what you lack. Look you.' Captain McBean sat himself on the bed and took the cup and waved the woman off. "'Tis the natural hail salinity and the sanguineous part, which you lose by a wound, and for lack of it you are thus faint. Therefore we do ever administer great possets of salt to the wounded, and—' "'And pickle me before I be dead,' says Harry. "'Be hanged to your jargon. "'You'll take another sup, my lad, if I hold your long nose to it, "'and you may suck your orange after.' Harry made a wry face, swallowed a mouthful, and lay back out of breath. After a while, "'You were here all night, weren't you?' he said. "'I am body physician to the family of voice, mon brave.' "'My father?' has a hole in his shoulder praise god and a damned paternal temper he will do well enough how do you come into it mcbean grinned who were they i am here to talk to you mon cher you will not talk to me for it is disintegrating to your tissues allons compose yourself and attend now i come into it if you please out of gratitude Mr. Boyce, I have it in command from His Majesty to present you with his thanks for very gallant and faithful service. Oh, the boy got off then. King James is returned to France, sir, says McBean with dignity. Looky, tie up your tongue. His Majesty charged me to put this in your hands and to advise you that he would never have in memory your resource and spirit and your loyalty which I do with great satisfaction, Mr. Boyce. Harry fingered a pretty toy of a watch circled with diamonds and wrought with a monogram in diamonds and sapphires. Poor lad, says he. It's his own piece and was his father's, I believe. Pardieu, sir, there's many will envy you. Harry's head went back on his pillows. It's a queer taste. Mr. Boyce, you may count upon it that when his majesty is established in power he he will have as bad a memory as the rest of his family bah what does it matter you are talking of the millennium you will talk will you says mcbean i'll gag you mon dieu if you answer me back again come sirrah you know the king better he's a noble generous lad so leave the whiggish sneers to your father so much for that now mon ami you have put me under a great obligation it was a rare piece of work and to be frank i did not think you had it in you but i did count upon you as a gentleman of high honour and pardieu i count myself very fortunate i applied to you i speak for my party mr boyce when i thank you and promise you any service of mine harry mumbled something like damn your eloquence but mcbean was not to be put off you will like to know that the king when he was quit of marlborough egad the old villain hath been a gentleman in this business made straight for me and was instant that i should concern myself for you i held it my first duty to get his majesty out of the country 
between ourselves i was never in love with his plan of palace trickery and madame anne but the thing was offered us and we could not show the white feather bien his majesty took assurance from marlborough of your safety so i had no great alarm for you i could not be aware of your private feuds but now mordieu i make them my own i promise you it touches me nearly that you should be hacked down and egad before my eyes harry tried to raise himself and said eagerly who was in it who were they captain mcbean responded with some more of the salt broth now i'll confess that i had some doubts of your father as soon as i were back in london i made haste to find you i was waiting at that tavern of yours when i heard the scuffle you were down before i reached you and there was your father fighting across you most heroical faith i did not know the old gentleman had it in him he had pinked one i believe but he is slow and they were too many for him he took it badly in the shoulder as i came but they were not workmen i put one out at the first thrust and the rogues would not stand i tickled one in the arm as he ran but missed the sinew in his fat so it ended now i'll confess i did the old gentleman a wrong i guessed the business might be one of his damned superfine plots it would be like him to have you finished while he made a brag of fighting for you but i was wrong mordieu i believe he has a kindness for you harry what says harry startled by the name oh mon ami you must let me be kindly too egad you command my emotions sir no the old gentleman hath his humanity he would have died for you harry and faith he is so rheumatic he nearly did no it was not he played this damn game who do you think it was that i put on his back that rascal ben you remember ben of the north road i put the villain to the question who set him on you bien he was hired to it by that fine fellow waverton geoffrey harry gasped even so now harry what has master geoffrey waverton against you if he wanted to murder your father i could understand it that affair at pontois is matter enough for a life or two though he should take it gentlemanly but why must he murder you i am not dead yet said harry and his mouth set captain mcbean laughed not by fifty year and he contemplated harry's pale drawn face with benign approval but why does mr waverton want you dead now that's my affair said harry enfin captain mcbean shrugged with a twist of the lip and a cock of the eye is there more of that broth says harry captain mcbean administered it i go get another cup harry he nodded and went out his two aides mackenzie and o'connor were waiting below donald go up the same orders none but rolf is to come to him without you stand by and shorten your damned long face if you can patrick we take horse chapter thirty two perplexities of captain mcbean 
Captain McBean and Mr. O'Connor halted steaming horses before the door of Tetherden. The butler announced that Mr. Waverton had gone out, and then impressed by the evidence of haste and the martial elegance of McBean, suggested that my lady might receive the gentleman. How? The animal has a mother, says Monsieur McBean in French, and shrugged and beckoned the butler closer. Now, my friend, could you make a guess where I should look for Mr. Waverton? And money passed. Sir, Mr. Waverton rides over sometimes to the hall at Highgate, Miss Lamb, Mrs. Boyce's house. The butler looked knowing. Mrs. Boyce? Hey, is that Colonel Boyce's lady? The butler smiled discreetly. No, sir, to be sure. Young Boyce. Young Mr. Boyce, sir. Captain McBean wheeled round in such a hurry that the butler was almost overthrown. They clattered off. It was not till they were riding through the wood that McBean spoke. Patrick, my man, would you say that Harry Boyce is the man to marry wisely and well? Faith, I believe he would not be doing anything wisely. That same is his charm. Tiens, it begins now to be ugly. Why must the boy be married at all, mon Dieu? It will be in his nature, says O'Connor, and likely to a shrew. If that were all, I bah, they shall have no satisfaction in it, but no more will I. There were at the hall two women who had almost become calm by mingling their distress and their tears. It's believed that they slept in each other's arms and slept well enough. In the morning another messenger was sent off to the Long Acre Tavern. If he came back with no news, it was agreed they should move into town. They said no more of their fears. Each had some fancy that she was putting on a brave face for the other's sake. There is no doubt that they found the stress easier to bear for consciousness of each other's endurance. So Mr. Hadley and his Susan were received by an atmosphere of gentle peace. Much to Mr. Hadley's surprise, who would complain that a venture into Alison's house was much like a post over against the Irish Brigade, for a man never knew how she would break out upon him, but could count upon it that she would be harassing. We are so glad says susan she loves to march her prisoner through the town it's a simple brutish taste oh i am so i believe says susan and contemplated mr hadley with placid satisfaction she is too honest for you mr hadley alison said oh lud yes ma'am the mass of her overwhelms me and it's all plain virtue a heavy solemn thing Look you, Susan, you embarrass madame with your revelations. It is curious. He is always ill at ease when I am with him. Because you make me tedious, child. That's your vanity, Mr. Hadley, Alison tried to keep in tune with them. Look you, Susan, I am cashiered by marriage. Once I was Charles, now I am without honour. 
Mr. Geoffrey Waverton, quoth the butler. Alison's hand went to her breast, and she was white. Dear Geoffrey, Mr. Hadley murmured. I do not know when last I saw dear Geoffrey, and he turned a sardonic face to the door. Susan leaned forward. Alison, dear, if you choose, she began in a whisper. Sit still, Alison muttered. Stay, stay. Mr. Waverton came in with measured pomp, stopped short and surveyed the company, and at last made his bow. Madame, you're most obedient. I fear that I come untimely. Alison could not find her voice, so it was Mr. Hadley who answered. Lord Geoffrey, dear, you're never out of season, like mutton. I give Mrs. Hadley joy, says Geoffrey. Such wit must be rare company. Alison was staring at him. You have something to say to me? You may speak out. There are no secrets here. Is it so, Faith? Egad, what friendship! But you have always been fortunate. And, in fact, I bring you news of more fortune. You are free of your Mr. Boyce, ma'am. You are done with him. He has been picked up dead. He smiled at Alison. Alison white and still and dumb. Mrs. Weston gave a cry and fell back in her chair, and her fingers plucked at her dress. Mr. Hadley strode across and stood very close to Geoffrey. "'Take care,' says he in a low voice. "'Well, tell all your story,' Alison said. "'They found him lying in the kennel in Long Acre,' Geoffrey smiled. "'Oh, there was some brawl, it seems. He was set upon by his tavern cronies in a quarrel about a wench he had.' very proper end. Geoffrey, you are a cur, says Mr. Hadley in his ear. You are lying, Alison cried. Mr. Waverton laughed and waved his hand. Oh, ma'am, you are a chameleon. The other day you desired nothing better than Monsieur's demise. Now at the news of it you grow venomous. I vow I cannot keep pace with your changes. I must withdraw from your intimacy. Tis too exacting for my poor vigour. Madame, you're most humble. Not yet, Alison cried. Let him go, ma'am. Mr. Hadley broke in sharply. Go home, sirrah. You'll not wait long before you hear from me. From which hand? Geoffrey flicked at the empty sleeve. Nay, faith, it suits madame well. The left-handed champion. Mr. Hadley turned on his heel. Pray, ma'am, leave us. This is become my affair. I have not done with him yet, Alison said. But the door was opened for the servant to say, Captain Hector McBean, Mr. Patrick O'Connor, and with a clank of spurs and something of a military swagger, the little man and the long man marched in. Captain McBean swept a glance round the room. So, says he with satisfaction, and made a right guess at Alison, Mrs. Boyce, I am necessitated to present myself, Captain McBean. What? More champions? Geoffrey laughed. Oh, ma'am, you have too general a charity. My sympathy is in your way. And he made his bow and was going off. 
Mordieu, you relieve me marvellously, says McBean, and O'Connor put his back against the door. Mr. Waverton waved O'Connor aside. You'll be Mr. Waverton, says O'Connor. Odd's life, sir, stand out of my way. But O'Connor laughed, and McBean tapped the magnificent shoulder. Mr. Waverton swung round. Hark in your ear, says McBean. You're a lewd, cowardly scoundrel, Mr. Waverton. Mr. Waverton glared at him, stepped back, and turned on Alison. Pray, ma'am, control your bullies. I desire to leave your house. Let him be, sir. Alison stood up. Leave us, if you please. I have to speak with him. You have not, McBean frowned. The affair is out of your hands. Come, sir, march. There's a pretty piece of turf beyond the gates. Your friend there may serve you. Not I, sir, Mr. Hadley put in. I have myself a meeting to require of Mr. Waverton. So? I like the air here better and better, pardieu. Well, Mr. Waverton, we'll even walk out alone. Your bluster won't serve you, sirrah. If you be a gentleman, which you make incredible, you may proceed in order, and I'll consider if I may do you the honour to meet you. Gentlemen, bah! I am Hector McBean, captain in Bouffier's regiment. Come, sir, now are you warmer? He struck Mr. Waverton across the eyes. Mr. Waverton, drawing back, turned again upon Alison. My God, did you bring your bullies here to murder me? I did not bid you here, Alison said. Lash, says Mr. O'Connor with a shrug. En fait, says McBean, and sat down. Observe, Waverton, I have given you the chance to take a clean death. You have not the courage for it. Tant mieux. You may now hang. Mr. Waverton again made a move for the door, but Mr. O'Connor stood solidly in the way. Attention, Waverton. You have bungled your business as usual. Your fellow Ned Boone hath been taken and lies in Newgate. He has confessed that he and his gang were hired for this murder by a certain Geoffrey Waverton. It is a lie. Waverton, I have a whip as well as a sword. I do not concern myself with you, sir, says Mr. Waverton, with dignity. You are repeating a lesson, I see, but I advise you I shall not permit myself to be slandered. This fellow, Ned Bone, Boone, what is his vulgar name? I know nothing of him. If he pretends to any knowledge of me, he lies. You told me that you had hired men to spy upon Mr. Boyce, Alison said. Mr. Waverton laughed. Oh, ma'am, I thank you for a flash of honesty. Here's the truth, then. In madam's interest, I had arranged with her that a party of fellows should watch her scurvy husband. She suspected him of various villainies, infidelity, what you will. And, egad, I dare to say she was right. But I have no more concern in it. So you may his back to your employers, Captain Mac, what's your name, and advise them that I am not to be bullied. 
I shall know how to defend myself. Alison came nearer, Captain McBean. Sir, this is a confection of lies. It is true the man told me he was planning a watch on Mr. Boyce, but not of my will, and when I knew I did instantly give Mr. Boyce warning. I shall deal with you in good time, McBean frowned. Dieu de Dieu. I do not excuse you. Attention, Waverton. You lie stupidly. Your bullies, Dieu, blunder in your own style. It would not content them to murder Mr. Boyce. They must have his father, too. They could not do their business quietly, nor finish it. The rogue Ben was caught, and the colonel has only a hole in his shoulder. You may know that he is not the man to forgive you for it. So, Waverton, you have suborned murder and furnished evidence to hang you for it. You must meddle with Colonel Boyce to make sure that his Whiggish party who hold the government shall not spare you. You set every Jacobite against you when you struck at Harry. However things go now, there'll be those in power urgent to hang you. Go home and wait till the runners take you off to Newgate. March. Mr. O'Connor opened the door with alacrity. I am not afraid of you, Waverton cried, and you, madame, you, the widow, be sure if I am attacked, your loose treachery shall not win you off. What I have done, you know well it was done for you and in commerce with you. Mr. O'Connor took him by the arm. Don't presume to touch me, he called out, trembling with rage. Mr. O'Connor propelled him out. I believe Patrick will cut the coat off his back, said McBean pensively, and then laughed a little. He brushed his hand over his face and stood up and marched on Alison. Now for you, he said, I beg leave of the company. He made them a bow and waved them out of the room. Sir? Mr. Boyce? Mrs. Weston said faintly. Madame, Mr. Boyce is not dead. He lies wounded. I make no apologies, pardieu. It is imperative to frighten the Waverton out of the country, since he would not stand up to be killed. You, madame, he turned frowning upon Alison. You must have him no more in your neighborhood. Alison bent her head. Mr. Hadley came forward. Captain McBean, you take too much upon yourself. I'll answer for it at my leisure, sir. Pray go, Charles, Alison said gently. So they went out, Mrs. Weston upon Susan's arm, and Captain McBean and Alison were left alone, the fierce little lean man stretching every inch of him against her rich beauty. You do me some wrong, sir, Alison said. Is it possible? McBean's chest swelled to the sneer. Pray, sir, don't scold. It passes me by. Nay, I cannot answer you. I have no defence, I believe. Be sure that you can say nothing to make my hurt worse. How long shall we go on talking about you, madame? Alison flushed dark, and turned away and muttered something. What now? McBean said. In another moment he saw that she was crying. Some satisfaction, perhaps, no pity, 
softened his stare she turned making no pretence to hide her tears i beg of you take me to mr boyce i said madame mr boyce is not yet dead the sharp precise voice spared her nothing i do not know whether he will live alison gave a choking cry i do not know whether he would desire to live what do you mean a madness of fear of love perhaps distorted her face you well know when i rode out this morning i had it in mind to kill the waverton and conduct you to mr boyce but i did not guess that waverton would refuse to be killed like a gentleman or that i should find you engaged in the rogue's infamy but that is his lie ah you must know that it is a lie you heard how he turned on me and his vileness bien you have played fast and loose with him i allow that it does not commend you to me madam i'll not bear it alison cried wildly oh sir you have no right mr boyce would never endure you should treat me so dieu de dieu would you trade upon harry's gentleness now ay madam he would not treat you so mordieu he would see nothing know nothing believe nothing and let you make a mock of him again but if you please i stand between him and you you have no right alison muttered it is you who have put me there you madame when you played him false with this waverton that is a lie a lie she cried oh content you you are all chastity i do not doubt it but you drove harry away from you you admitted your waverton to intimacy you let him hope believe bah what does it matter you were in his secrets you knew he put bullies upon harry now he has failed and you are in a fright and want your harry again permit me madam not to admire you what do you want of me alison said miserably End of part nine